In this episode of Investors and Operators, I'm sitting down with Joel Thor Neeb. Is that your middle name? Or is that, what is that? That's the call sign. That's nothing. All right. <laughs> I was about to say, that is, you would be really lucky to name that, as it? Your parents are awesome. Uh, Joel is the CEO of Afterburner, a former F-15 pilot, survivor of stage four cancer, contestant on American Ninja Warrior, climber of Mount Kilimanjaro, author of Survivor's Obligation, an Ironman triathlete, and an all-around underachiever. Joel, I don't know where to start, but welcome to this show. <laughs> Jordan, super excited to be here. Thanks. I, I don't know if I'll be able to live up to that intro, but uh, we, we peaked effectively in the first minute uh, for me here. The rest is a slide. What did you feel the first time you took off in an F-15? So uh, a little bit of disbelief. Uh, you you truly have an out-of-body experience when you do something like that. It's something that you look forward to for years, something that probably in the back of your mind didn't think that you're capable of doing. Everybody's got that little whisper of self-doubt uh, that takes place. And that, that's been kind of the revelation for me dealing with other leaders to hear about how prevalent that is. And you have that. And now it's happening. And you kind of got to pinch yourself to believe it's happening. It's a, it's a combination of two things, fear and exhilaration. Uh, to take off in an F-15 for the first time. And I found that the most transformative moments in my life have always been a combination of fear and exhilaration. All right, well, we're gonna dive deeper into that. But before we do, what is Afterburner? What does the company do? So Afterburner is a company that was founded by uh, my mentor, Jim Murphy, 24 years ago. We've been around for 24 years. And it's based on the premise that uh, I had, that he had, that we all kind of had when we became fighter pilots, which was, how the heck did this happen to me? When you are turned from just being a normal everyday person, not particularly intelligent, doesn't bring anything unique to the table compared to the, you know, just another average American, and you are somehow transformed into a fighter pilot, flying faster than the speed of sound and um, manipulating a $50 million jet 45,000 feet above the ground in a couple of months of training, or you're transformed into a Navy SEAL uh, that's a, a team member that's traveling the world in their early 20s and on this elite force or an army ranger that's commanding troops that speak three different languages and, and from three different countries and somehow building alignment and success. And the epiphany was I was part of something that transformed me. I don't quite know what that was, but it was magical. And if we can bottle that and push it out to other groups, that would be incredibly transformative and valuable. And so we created Afterburner to do just that take the principles that made us successful in the, uh, in the complex, dynamic, hostile environment of the battle zone and translate that to the boardroom for corporations. So what, what does a typical engagement look like? So for us at Afterburner, uh, it kicks off with us building some inspiration around the teams. And so what that really amounts to is we're gonna descend on that group very often a surprise for that team. And so in other words, we'll go show up at the, the annual meeting that they have scheduled. Yep. They don't know we're coming. Uh, and uh, it, as the CEO of the company is going through an Excel spreadsheet, uh, the harder to read, the better. We always tell them get something with like 400 cells visible, zoom out so everybody in the crowd is just you know, trying to fall asleep. And we're gonna burst in with megaphones. We might even have some of our uh, special operators zip line in from the, uh, from the ceiling and, and uh, pull out the false panels in the ceiling and come in. We're taking over the meeting. And from that point forward, we're putting you through a simulation and experience that uh, is gonna be one part training, one part fun, and, uh, and one part transformative for your business. Well, I, what was the recent award that you won? I was Inc. 5, was it Inc. 5,000? Yep, we got the Inc. 5,000 award. Uh, we just were able to announce that last week. 
And, and what that amounts to is that we're one of the 5,000 fastest growing privately held companies in America. So that represents, I, I want to say, 58% year-over-year growth that we were able to achieve. And, and part of that was during COVID. And so really proud of my team. It would, I mean, you can imagine how challenging it is to maintain a business. Uh, yeah, everybody knows during COVID, particularly one that's, that's reliant upon in-person live sessions. Uh, so we had to pivot really quickly. And, uh, and it hasn't been all great, but uh, we've done a phenomenal job of pivoting into a new market. What did you observe from some of the companies that you worked with about how they successfully navigated this tumultuous time? Um, and also for firms that are still trying to figure it out and might feel overwhelmed, might feel like they're being hit from all directions, how do you sort through that? I like the way you asked that because it's, it's not over. Uh, by any stretch. And so for those firms that haven't weathered this well, that haven't made the transition, you know, it feels like we've gone through this for five years, but it's really only like 20 weeks. You know, at the, at the time of this recording, we're 20 weeks into this experience and, and there's a ton of time left to, can, to make a pivot. So here's the, the companies and the, the teams that I've seen pivot well, here's what they've done. As, all, as everything, it comes down to leadership. It, it's incumbent upon the leaders to make the transition from what we call peacetime leadership role to a wartime leadership role. What's the difference? Peacetime leadership role, I'm gonna rely on my experience as a leader. There's a lot of predictability in events. I'm gonna be able to connect the dots very quickly because I've got 20 years of doing this and I know what to expect because I've, I've been there, done that. And I, all I have to do is remove hurdles from my team and I have a good plan. I'm gonna put them on that plan. They're gonna go execute it. We're gonna do well. That's a peacetime leader. But I can't do that during chaos. As a, during chaos, I have to shift to a very, very different type of leadership style, and that's the following. I can't rely on my experience anymore. My experience is going to lead me astray. The patterns that have guided me in the past are invalid. I've got to find new patterns for success. During chaos, all of those cause and effect relationships are broken that we built over 20 years, and so we have to resist the temptation to follow those and do something really hard at this time and ask our team what they think we should do. So in other words, as a general on the battlefield, they, they know that during war, they have to shift to then get frontline in, information, intelligence, real-time information from those troops, literally fighting with a knife on their teeth, in their teeth on the front lines and find out how the battle is going. And it's only with that informed approach that they can make decisions strategically to shift the business or the, the, the team in the war zone. And so as that leader, the first thing they got to do is figure out a way to get their finger to the pulse of the rest of the team. And that's not just getting on a Zoom call like this and saying, hey, anybody have any information for me? That's very deliberately soliciting information. Where did the market go away? Where, are we, where is it never going to come back? What, what tree are we beating? What bush are we beating right now? That's never going to yield anything forever. And we need to stop doing it. Where has the market moved towards that we need to go pursue and ask our teams that? And then in a really directive fashion, shift course. And that's the scary part as a leader. This is the next thing that we see leaders making a mistake on, that they make a subtle shift or, you know, they, they get an analysis paralysis. Look, every week during COVID is the equivalent of at least a month during pre-COVID times. More market shares changing hands, more definitive events are taking place in a week than would take place in a month at any other time. So you have to be highly directed with your team, but you have to get their insights first before you can be able to be directed with an informed position. Are most people one or the other? Can people effectively go between them or are they fundamentally different? And I ask that because 
I know from my perspective, I am the most effective when my back is against the wall and there yeah. is only one place to go. And it, I think I, I think I swear to you, I think I do this on purpose that I kind of put myself back, back against the wall just because I know I perform better in that. But do you, have you found effective leaders who are able to be both? I think the most effective leaders are able to be both, um, but it is definitely different competencies because they lend themselves to different personalities, right? That peacetime leader is the one who's shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, walking the leadership by walking uh, kind of thing, walking around and, and getting to know the team members and, and it's training and just road execution and it's just the same thing over and over again. And that wartime leader is very different. It lends itself to a personality that values that intensity, that is capable of making these split-second decisions and, and, and being confident enough to continue with that, but then also being, uh, being in, in introspective enough to shift the strategy when it's not working because we do have to stay agile during chaos. And so I think it's very different personalities that lend themselves to it. I'm the same way, by the way. I, I thrive in an environment where I have a crisis, real or imagined, that, uh, that I'm fighting my way through. And I know that that makes me less of a peacetime leader. And I, I, you know, I just know that I, during, during good operations, I, I can rub my team the wrong way because they're like, why is he so excited? Why is he, you know, what's the, what's the sense of urgency around this right now? And it's because I have one created, I have a burning platform under my feet at all times that I can't, I can see and they can't. Uh, and, and, you know, that's just a blind spot or maybe it's not a blind spot. I see it. It's, it's a competency that, that I'm developing as a peacetime leader. How, how would you characterize your leadership style and also how do you think that you have evolved maybe some mistakes and bumps along the way yeah. that have shaped you to the person the uh, individual that you are the family leader that you are and the business leader that you are great question there's so there's three events i can think of that have shaped me along my trajectory one is just becoming a pilot and a fighter pilot in general uh, and being exposed to this mentality that as much as I wanted to resist um, being transformed because people resist change, as much as my, my mind wanted to resist getting into an airplane and going upside down with nothing but a seatbelt and a half inch of plexiglass separating me from a three-mile fall, because I was a part of this incredible system of in individuals that were aligned with me and that were pushing me to do more than I could, as well as a, a training environment that had a vision for success and a clear path to get there. Those two com combination, the incredible team and an inspiring mission allowed me to transform very quickly. So that, as a leader, I'm always trying to create that environment for the groups that I work with. That's the first one, just becoming a pilot in general. The second one was when I became a young instructor. I'm like 24 years old uh, and I'm instructing in the, the training program to, to create the new pilots uh, for the Air Force. I remember coming back to this program and thinking, I'm going to be the guy that I always wish I had as an instructor. I'm going to be their buddy. This was a hard program that I just completed, and I'm now just instructoring, and I'm going to help them in a way that I never really got helped uh, in the training. And what ended up happening was I blurred the line between leader and peer, and because of that, they took advantage of the situation that, and, you know, would wouldn't hold themselves to as high of a standard because they knew that I was going to always catch them when they fell. And so it was a leadership mistake on my part. And it's something I learned uh, early on, and I'm fortunate that I did, that uh, we're, we're much better set creating a boundary between ourselves and the team that, uh, that we lead. doesn't mean we can't be friends with them. doesn't mean we can't have incredible mutual respect on a personal level. But uh, I was putting my students in an unsafe position 
because I wasn't compelling them to rise to the most successful, safest pilot that they could be that by pushing them out of their comfort zones on a regular basis. If we could kind of dive deeper a little bit on that, how have you been an effective coach or trainer when you find somebody who you know is really valuable and it just needs to develop a particular skill, how do you kind of remove the emotions of the feedback to give quality feedback? You know, I think the military culture, it's, it's, it's expected to give direct candid feedback as a, as a rule. But um, to people like me and others who have not been through that culture, you know, how can we be effective leaders with the idea of like radical candor? Great question. That has to start with you. In other words, everybody loves the idea of radical candor. Uh, until they realize that that begins with them receiving that radical candor first. Because in order to create that culture where that's acceptable, to create that little tree of trust, where we're all going to say what uh, the other person's doing wrong, we want that. And that's a human, natural human desire to have like that relationship like you would with a brother or a sister or a cousin or a best friend that's going to pull you aside and say, hey, you're doing this wrong and you need to know this and here's why. We want that. But at the same time, I don't want it to be a one-way street. You know, I want it to be a mutual relationship where we're, we're developing each other. So you got to start that. As a leader, what I used to do with my young troops uh, when I was a flight commander uh, or the chief instructor pilot in my later years uh, for the, the training command, I would say to them, why will I not make general? If I, if I just ask them how they're doing, they'd be like, you're doing great, great. I love you. You're an awesome leader. You're a phenomenal job. I'll say, well, okay, I appreciate it. Thank you, truly. I, I respect that. But why? Why will I not reach the peak? Why will I, I not reach general? And they're being genuine. They're basically saying, yeah, you got a 90%, A minus, awesome job. And I'm asking them, what stands between me and the ultimate uh, role here? And they would say, well, do you really want to know? And, and I'd say, yeah, I'd love to hear this. And so they, I would, the, the following words out of their mouth were always the most incredible, uh, you know, things that I had a blind spot to and, and, and would, would need to hear as a leader. And it's not something I always changed. I was told in the past, well, you're not going to be a general because you don't spend enough time at work. And uh, honestly, you're just going to have to clock in more. You have to be seen more. You have to do more engagement with other folks. And I was aware of it from that point, but I made a conscious decision to not pursue that. That's, you know, that I, I had other priorities. So it starts with you as a leader to ask that. And if you're willing to ask that, trust me, when you turn around and say to that person, here's why you're not going to be a general, that conversation can be a lot easier uh, when you when you engage in it. Can we talk about accountability? And because I think in our, our company, like for example, one of the practices we do is we have our morning stand up and then we have our 5 p.m. accountability. Like here's what we said we would do, here's what we did or didn't do, and let's give ourselves a one to 10 rating and why. Yep. Um, but I, I, it's been something I've struggled with my entire life is accountability because I pile on too much and so can you just kind of talk about just accountability and leadership and kind of how to be an effective, effective executive in the, through the lens of accountability? Yeah, great question. The, the more successful you get, the more tempting it is to do more, right? And the more time you're going to be asked to do more. If you're the successful person, you're going to be tapped into to more and more opportunities. The most successful people I know in their youth say yes to everything. Hey, will you do this new job? In the back of your mind, you're thinking, I don't know how to do that. I'm going to say yes. Hey, there's this new opportunity we got for you. I want you to take on this new role. It's public speaking. It's going to be a little bit scary, but I think you can do it. I'm really scared of that, but I'm going to say yes. 
it's critical that you say yes as often as you can in your 20s and when you're new to a role. There's a really important transition point that exists though as you become successful because you're going to start being perceived as the one who, who just does these things naturally well. And that is the ability to shift from saying yes to as much as possible to saying no to as much as possible. And it's a really difficult transition and you watch leaders in their mid thirties that are really struggling with this because it's, they finally reached that place of success where they're being asked to do all these things. This is what they wanted. I mean, that was the, the local maximum they were going for to say yes to whatever came their way. But now they're missing the fact that there's a global maximum, something even further out that if they'd only say no more often, they'd have access to. And the last story I'll leave you with is, is the one from Oracle of Omaha. He's spacing on his name right now. Uh, you know, he just bought a bunch of gold. Warren Buffett? What's that? Yeah, Buffett. Yeah. Buffett is uh, mentoring his pilot, the guy that, that flies his executive jet. And the pilot says, you know, I've got all these dreams. I want to go into business. I want to do these things too. I want you to mentor me. I'd love to be, you know, just a semblance of what you've accomplished. And Buffett said, okay, that's great. You know, you're doing amazing things already. Um, I want you to come back tomorrow and bring me a list of 25 things that you want to do in life. Have you heard this story before? No. So he says, okay, comes back with 25 things and you rank order them. Number one's the most important. 25 is really important, but you know, the least important on the list. And Warren Buffett says to him, all right, one through five, I want you to put all of your effort into achieving those things or as much of your effort as possible. He's all right, all my effort. Got it. That looks good. And he says, what do you, pilot says, what do you want me to do with six through 10? And Warren Buffett said, I want you to cross those out. I want you to pretend they don't exist because those are the things that are stopping you from hitting one through five. I thought, gosh, that is exactly what people need to hear at that transition point, that you will not reach the level of success that you could because you are doing too much. You're capable of doing those other things too. It's not that you're not. Not the same problem you entered with where you had to say yes to things just to prove you could do it. Now you can do them. It's just you can't do everything well. For us, and we discovered things like the service of hosting webinars, the service of hosting events for people, which we didn't even think about. And, but then there has to be that big drawback of like, like what are the critical few things that are going to make the biggest difference? Exactly. And just having the discipline to focus on that um, instead of the shiny object syndrome. And by that, I, I don't mean easy. I just mean you simplify it, whether that's in a, in a jet cockpit with 350 instruments and you tell your student, I know there's 350 in there. I want you to pay attention to these three instruments because that's what's going to keep you safe in this phase of flight. And I know that because of my experience getting to this point. Figuring out what are the instruments in our life to pay attention to is the most defining and uh, distinguishing skill set, I think, for the real strategic leaders that, that we all uh, admire. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I was literally just having this discussion with our video post-production team because they've made a couple errors on subtitles, which means that we have to wait another day to get everything back done. I was like, literally, create a checklist. And, and if most people would be insulted by that, right? I mean, you and I live by checklists and I, I make checklists for myself all the time. If you tell that to somebody else, their initial reaction is to say, I have to do something as pedantic as create a list of things to do. Who do you think you are? I am above that. I can figure this out on my own. I just got off a call with a guy uh, who, who bragged to me that, you know, I, I spend like 30 seconds getting ready for every one of my meetings. And I was thinking to myself, what kind of shows? <laughs> that you don't only do that. You, you, everyone needs to have a list of, in, a, in a standardized approach. Why is that so important? Because if we can standardize the minutia, I agree with you, it is boring minutia, silly stuff that we shouldn't have to put our creative energy towards it. But if we can standardize that, 
then we create the time to use our creative energy against the stuff we do care about. Well, and I, for our for our purpose, the reason why I found it so important for us to do recently is that when you're creating a new company or new services, everything was coming through me. And I can't actually have a team that can execute if there's no systems and processes. Right. And so for me, I've had to notice that to really, really like consciously draw back from sales and marketing and focus on being a leader and training people. Because no. I realized like, otherwise I'm just a glorified freelancer that's doing really good content, really good posts, but it's not a team. And, and be honest, it feels kind of good that you're needed in everything, right? That you're the bottleneck. That's where our minds are wired. And it, you kind of get this little shot of dopamine that, ah, they can't do it without me. And, but that's the opposite of what we should be feeling. We should be saying the system will never endure. The system will never scale until they can do it without me. We have to be able to remove ourselves from the system, which is a shot to our egos. And we hate that because that's, you know, we, we built ourselves up for this moment to be needed but it's exactly at this time when we need to create a system where we're not needed. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion I was having with one of our account execs. And uh, they were feeling a little bit down because on a particular skill set, they didn't feel up to par. I was like, this reminds me of me being a white belt in the gym in jujitsu. My job as a white belt is to get my butt kicked for like a year or two. And the expectation is that I'm going to get my butt kicked. I'm going to get submitted. It's going to hurt. But eventually, on a good day, you might catch somebody and you might get a submission. But like, just have that expectation about where you're truly at with your skill set and be honest with yourself and just have the expectation like, it's okay. Like, I'm 12 years into the business. I've been doing content for a while. Don't have the same expectation. It's fine. Um, but can you talk about maybe teams that you've worked with and how to kind of manage the personalities of um, training someone they might be feeling down and kind of maybe that they're not feeling equal on a team and what the leaders can do to find those people who are truly valuable, but they just need to work on things. I think it's a, it's a really common problem. The, the thing that feels good to humans is that we're, we're in, in a state of change and we're growing, right? And so the, when someone tells me that, you know, I haven't arrived, I haven't done everything, I want to say to them, look, this is a growth mindset that you need to pursue, not a fixed state mindset, because what we're really saying, what that person is really saying is, I can't do it. Not, not that I won't be able to after some time, it's that I can't. I'm on a fixed state mindset. I'm a white belt getting tapped out right now. I'm always going to be a white belt. And what we have to teach our, our trainees, our, the folks that we're mentoring, is that there is a logical progression, and I want you to debrief this and see the progression that you're making every single day doesn't matter. You're always going to be on this progression, by the way. It doesn't matter what color belt is around your waist. There's always someone who can tap you out. And so we're learning and it's in this state of learning, in this state of growth that we perpetually want to find ourselves on. That's the destination, not eventually arriving and being at a place. Because as you know, you're, you're still not where you want to be along this journey. They, say you as the, they see you as the summit. And what you need to show them is that this is still a learning process for me as well. But that's where the fun and the beauty and the transformation lies that we appreciate that feeling of growth. What I'd like to do is pick up on the third thing that you were mentioning about how you has evolved as a leader. Yeah, so the, the first two uh, were, first of all, just becoming a pilot and a, and a fighter pilot. And I was pulled through a system. It's an incredibly inspiring team that I was a part of. And I just learned the power of being on an incredible team on an inspiring mission. 
And the second thing was that I, I had not created a boundary between myself and the team that I supervised as a leader. And I, I did this through some great, you know, altruistic motivations. I wanted to be their uh, supporter and I wanted to do the best for them, but I didn't realize that sometimes doing the best for your team is creating that boundary and forcing them to get out of their comfort zone and step up and not always catching them when they fall. And the third thing is really the definitive moment of my life. And it's, it's not that I was a fighter pilot, like most people I think would assume, it's that I had uh, stage four cancer and I effectively spent two years on my deathbed uh, in the 2010 timeframe. I was told I had 18 months to live, made all the videos for my kids for the holidays I would never see my wife and, you know, went through horrific goodbyes and, and you know, just what you expect from, from that type of nightmare. But in the process, I remember thinking that if I made it through this, I would live my life so differently with the clarity and perspective I'd gained from, from having everything taken away and, and being forced to realize what was important. One of, the, one of the clear things, and this is how I evolved as a leader because of this moment, was that I realized that not only was I going to die in 18 months, but that I, but I was going to die at all. Uh, and, and it's a notional thought in all of our heads, but all of a sudden it became very real to me. And I had regrets. I didn't regret that I failed at anything. I, I didn't even think of those. You, you'd think those would be the things, like the things that keep us up at night in good times or you know, I, how embarrassing something was or how you failed and everybody saw it. First of all, nobody's paying attention to you. <laughs> We're the star of the movie in our heads and that's about the only place. And so no matter what we win, no matter what we fail at, nobody is really paying that much attention to you. So just keep doing what you want to do and what you are connected to and in your life mission and then focus only on that because nobody's watching anything else, number one. But then number two, it, it showed me that what I regretted were not my failures. I regretted those times I didn't try because I was concerned about what somebody else thought because I was afraid because I was going to coast on the accolades I'd already received. I didn't want a chance, you know, losing that definition of success because I was going to pursue another one. And it, it all comes back to ego. And, and so when I did get a second chance at life and I miraculously did not die from this, I said, well, I'm going to fulfill uh, this, this obligation I have to myself and to the other people that I talked to, and we all said what well, we'd do differently if we somehow survived this um, in the cancer hospital, and I had that chance. And so today, I just have a different sense of urgency around um, what we want to accomplish in life. And that's helped evolve me as a leader and a team member in that I realized that we only have a finite amount of time, and it's a lot shorter than we think, to go pursue the biggest things that we want to get out of life. And if we're really serious about it, and if we really saw the timeline, we would be a lot more deliberate about our actions right now and have, have that sense of urgency. That's why I have that burning platform under my feet that nobody else can see that I can. And we have a mutual friend in John Allen. When we did a podcast together, he mentioned something similar because he had his near-death experience in combat. And he literally said, as he watched a grenade bounce off his body armor and out of the ground, so this is how I die. You know, in slow motion, he watches this happen. He thinks, this is the moment. This is literally, I'm watching what's going to kill me. And after that, he said he was a changed person because he now had a sense of urgency around just accomplishing things in life and living without regrets and, and not worrying about what other people thought about him. And I have the exact same thing. I think it's a commonality in, in near-death experiences. The Stoics will say, uh, you can do that without having a near-death experience, and you visualize your death. You have negative visualization, which sounds morbid and, and memento mori. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 
but it's so powerful. And, and, I, and I wish I had known that before cancer because it, it was the transformative moment in my life as a leader, as a contributor, as you know, to go on American Ninja Warrior and, and you said it as if it was an accolade. Well, if you, you don't blink if you watch the TV show because that's about how long I last on, on the course. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't care because I was out there and I was doing it and I was living. And then the next year I went on and I did even better and, I'm, and I was going to be on this year as well. So, it's, but that's the whole point that it's not to impress other people. And here's the biggest thing that I learned from it. And I, I want your listeners to hear that those things that we go after in life, those things that, that, that we feel pressure to do, that we have to do, what cancer taught me and what ha- having a near-death experience taught me is that we don't have to do those things. We get to. That subtle change in words has made all the difference for me. When you shift your mindset, and you don't say, I don't have to work out today. I don't, I, I can have a perfectly good day. I don't, my day is fine if I don't work out. But I have the luxury of working out. I'm healthy enough that I can go for a jog. I'm healthy enough that I get to go pursue something bigger than me, get outside of my comfort zone for a little portion of my day so that I can be bigger tomorrow and do more significant things tomorrow. I have that luxury. I get to do it. I don't have to. You know, when you were in the hospital and going through this, where was your head at? How did you get through this? So a lot of people hear about my story and they think, oh, you're a fighter pilot. You know, if anybody can handle this, it's you. you you're fortunate to have that. That really wasn't the case. I, you know, I, was, it was, I pretty much curled up in the fetal position for 30 days after this took place because I went from the picture of good health and, and applying to be the next Thunderbird pilot like the Blue Angels and, and everything's going right in my world to literally within about six weeks finding out I had cancer, not just cancer, but this ridiculously rare type of cancer that nobody really knows anything about. And it's stage four on top of that. And so I, I did um, probably what everybody would do in this moment and, and feel a lot of self-pity, like this isn't fair. Uh, I would spend my nights staring at the ceiling fan and just angry and scared and terrified, waiting and wishing for the day to come. So my big transformative moment, though, is what it was like, you know, very little actually comes down to a moment in your life. Everybody, we, we like to simplify that and books are written about a moment, but in this case, it really was a moment for me. And, and uh, the moment was the worst day of my life. The worst day of my life was in March of 2010. And as I'm driving to the hospital, I have this overwhelming sense of dread. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. I couldn't put my finger on it because I should be happier right now. I already got cancer was six weeks ago diagnosed. So it's not like this moment should be the worst. And as I roll up to the hospital, it's kind of re- reaching its peak and I'm just really anxious and you know panicking. My wife drops me off. She goes and parks the car. I'm all by myself and I'm walking into this massive building in downtown Houston, MD Anderson Hospital. I look up and I see all these windows in this building that can stretch up like 40 stories high. And I realize why I'm so anxious is because I'm walking into the building that I'm going to die in. And I'm going to die in this building pretty soon. And it's out of one of those windows that I'm going to take my last look out at the world, probably before Christmas. And it all hit me. And I closed my eyes and in front of everybody, I just looked up and, and eyes closed, tears streaming down my face. And I'm angry at God. And I said, God, I don't deserve this. I've done everything I'm supposed to do in life. And this is not fair. I'm 33 years old. I should have, be thinking about my kids and my, my future. And instead, I'm worried I'm going to be dead in six months. Heal me now. I don't deserve this. Heal me. 
and I opened up my eyes and I locked eyes with somebody else. Beautiful, beautiful blue eyes, I'll never forget, looking right at me. And she had on a surgical mask and she had a bald head and she was being wheeled in by her dad and she looked to be about eight years old. And she's staring at me. And in her eyes, in this moment that we have, me and this little girl, I could tell that she's afraid that she's going into this building. And in that second, all of my self-pity, all the weight of the world, the worst moment of my life, the millisecond before that was gone and is replaced by this feeling of, oh God, help that little girl. Don't help me. I am the most blessed person in the world. I'm 33 with a beautiful family. I've got an amazing life that other people would love to have. That little girl is not going to live to be a teenager. Help her, not me. And these doors closed behind her, and I never saw her again. But in that moment, I was transformed because I realized that if I could go from the lowest moment of my life into a complete opposite perspective and, and feeling empathy for another human being and, and wanting to, to help them, that I got to choose my reaction from that point forward. If I could switch in that moment, I could switch in any moment. And I said, from this point forward, I'm, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. And I'm not going to be afraid. And sure, I'll have fearful moments, but I am going to make a decision to react differently. And that's how I've lived since then. It's certainly not, not perfect. And, you know, I, 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 have, I have my moments, but uh, that was what transformed me and allowed me to perceive everything differently afterwards. And I like to say that God healed me. He actually answered my prayer in that moment. He didn't, he didn't heal me physically. I still had tons of cancer and other things to worry about and lots of chemo to do and big surgeries and, and all sorts of stuff. But he, he gave me the healing, not the healing I wanted, but the healing I needed in that moment. What was so powerful about that time, there's a phrase that the dying have the most to teach us about life. And that's just because when you get over the shock of it, you do get to spend the life the way that you always wish you would have, right? I'm sure you saw that with your brother. I love the video that you have with your brother as you're giving him a beer and that incredible moment that you shared with him and, and just going back to the simple things in life. And so that's, that's what I decided I am going to focus on. And, and I aggressively said no to anything else. Any other asks for my time that didn't align to how I wanted to live my life in that point, I said no to. And I lived that way all because I thought the ax was going to fall and I was going to die. But I kept waiting for that, and I created this new behavior of living life that way, going after incredible opportunities, living in the moment, you know, and creating, creating experiences with my family and instead of just chasing accolades. And I kept doing this, but the ax never fall, fell. And so for me, it was as if I was handed the keys to a happy life I'd never been given before. And, and just, you know, that was a glimpse into this, this new existence. And, and I feel like the most blessed guy on earth because I didn't just get a glimpse. I, I've gotten the last 10 years. Why is it, what is it about human nature that we have to get to the brink of something before we can actually learn something? <laughs> Why is it that we have to be on the brink of death or lose something or get rejected or feel extreme negative emotion for us to actually internalize as opposed to, Hey, let me read a book of a hundred bad stories that happen to people. Okay. I'm not going to do that. I heard a quote yesterday. I was listening to an audible book, a great book called resilience by a Navy SEAL. And in the book, one of the things that stuck out was that he said, knowledge is gained in books. Knowledge is gained from, from seeing, but wisdom is gained from doing. 
And unfortunately, as humans, we can read about things, but until we truly connect with it, we, we aren't left changed. Or to put it another way, I think it was Maya Angelou who said, we remember 5% of the things we see or hear, 10% of the things we see, 20% of the things that, uh, that we see and hear, but 90% of the things that we do. There's just an emotional connection that exists when we actually experience it. The good news for us, and why I think Stoicism is really onto something with this, is that you can visualize these things to such an extent that you actually experience that hardship. You can visualize the negative visualization of, of your death or your family member's death and that loss, and not in a morbid way that you're dwelling on it and creating anxiety that, that lasts beyond that moment, but to say, wow, am I grateful? Wow, I don't have cancer. I don't know what it's like to have cancer, but as you're talking, I can think about what it would look like for me to make videos for my kids and for my family and for me to have my last moments. And even as you picture that, you start to think, this is, this is what I would do differently. I say to people all the time, if you knew, just bear with me, if you knew that you only had a short time to live, what would you do differently? And they start off a little slow and they say, but then I'd do this. And I would say, who, do you, who would you talk to? If you only had, let's say, a week to live, who would you call? What would you say to them? If you want to, you want to get to somebody's core, ask them that question and have them honestly answer you and see you know, what they're holding back on. And then the last question is the one that very often will bring them to tears. And that is, why are you waiting? And they realize that they may not have that chance. They realize that they put barriers up to the life that they want to lead for whatever reason, because of fear, because of ego, because fill in the blank. And they, when they finally visualize what this would actually be like and what they're giving up because of inaction, then they, they're finally driven to action. Speaking of books, I was going to ask you what's your favorite book, but I should probably just ask you about the book you just wrote. So, <laughs> okay, so let's go there. The book is called Survivor's Obligation. And can you share what, it, what it's about, why you wrote it, and kind of what's your message is to people? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Survivor's Obligation, the, the concept came from the chemo room, effectively, when I was getting chemo treatments. And it was at a time when I really needed support and I was just entering into the treatment phase of this. And chemo, you know, chemo is, is poison, right? You are effectively starting a fire in your house to kill a rat. And you just hope that the, the rat dies before you burn your house down. And so it's a delicate balance that you're playing. And, and so it's a horrible experience to get chemo and, and people kind of know that. But we go into this big room where all these people are getting chemo. Some of them, some of them my age, some a little younger, some a little older. And you talk to them, you're sitting there for hours because it has a slow drip into your body, this poison. And while you're sitting there, these people had the most optimistic outlook. You'd think this would be the worst place to be, just super morbid and depressed, but it's not. These guys are all saying, you know, this is what I'm gonna do differently. When I have my second chance, I'm finally going to the World Cup and I'm gonna go watch soccer. I've never, I always said I was gonna do it, I never did, but I'm gonna finally do it. Another person would say, I'm gonna finally start that business. I talked about doing it. I never had the courage to do it. This has given me the courage to do it. Somebody else would say, I am going to rebuild this relationship. I just let it go away and it's with my kids and it's so important to me and cancer's taught me that. And we'd all have these moments. And then you come back the next week and somebody wouldn't be there. And you realize they never got that chance. And after enough time goes by, enough of these people disappear and I found myself on the other side of this. I was one of the few survivors. Some people have what's called survivor's remorse, very common uh, symptoms, situation where you actually feel guilty that you survived because somebody else didn't. I did not have that, but I did have what I call survivor's obligation. And when I was one of the few survivors on the other side of this, I felt a sense of obligation to actually 
live out what I said I was going to do in that chemo. Because I was living the second chance that every one of those other people who fought just as hard as I did would have given anything to have had access to. And so because of that second chance, I wasn't going to waste it. I was going to earn whatever new chance I had been afforded. What I realized is you don't have to have cancer to have a survivor's obligation. We're all survivors of something, whether that's a divorce, a broken home, of depression, of medical problems like mine, uh, you fill in the blank what you've survived. You are living the second chance right now. I don't care who you are. You're living the second chance that somebody else would have given anything to have. And we're accountable to that other person as to how we're living it. That's the obligation we all carry. After you got back to, uh, to great health, you know, you've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. You've done an Ironman. You have participated in American Ninja Warrior let's kind of talk about diet and exercise. Sure. When did this exercise routine or when did you start to really transform your body to where you are now? And like, what is maybe kind of starting off with actually, what is your daily routine like? Yeah. Exercise, so diet, et cetera. Daily routine, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. You think about somebody living a second chance and some people would think, and I even kind of wondered for myself, like, am I going to go into hedonistic lifestyle now? Because, you know, if you get a second chance, maybe, maybe I really regret working out. You know, maybe, maybe I say I wasted all this time worrying about eating all these dumb vegetables and, and working out and doing all these things. But that's, that's not the path. That, that wasn't what pulled me on the other side of this. What I realized was I love the journey. I love growing. I love dedicating myself to something. I love trying to improve myself, life hacks and and that experience of learning about yourself and that always incorporates some level of pain. And I had spent so long pre-cancer kind of nerfing myself to pain and figuring out ways to keep pain out of my life. And if I keep doing things and pain will go away, what I didn't realize was that pain is our most powerful tool for the life that we want to live. Whether that pain is physical, whether that pain is doing something that makes you afraid, but Whatever, our, whatever we truly want to accomplish is on the other side of that pain. And I had to accept the fact that a little bit of pain each day led to a lot of happiness on the other side. Les Brown has a fact that he quote, that if you do what is hard, your life will be easy. If you do what is easy, your life will be hard. And I think it's so true. So this morning, we'll give you a quick example. So today, I've not worked out today. This is my day off, but I work out about uh, five days a week. Right now, I'm in the middle of an 18-hour fast. And I do that uh, because I, I, that's one of the ways that you get rid of cancer in your body and, and other things that can hold you back. It's a great thing to try and do and then just kind of test the limit of your body. I love, I love seeing what happens when I, when I do, you know, put my body through a little bit of, of stresses and, and, and it's not terrible. Look, I'm not a masochist. I don't like pain, uh, but this isn't that bad. You know, I, I go through yeah. a little pain at 1030 and then I don't even feel it right now. If, I, if we weren't talking about this, I would not yeah. be talking about food. Well, actually, back on the routines, like, what is your typical exercise routine? I mean, now we're in a unique environment with COVID, but, like, what is a, uh, what's your current exercise routine? So, current exercise routine, when I think of exercise, I don't want to just go through the pain. I want to do something that inspires me a little bit. I love ideas like soul cycle. If, you, if your listeners have ever done that, you go into a big room about, you know, you're literally, like, shoulder to shoulder with some other sweaty person on a bike, but it's super motivating. The music and the message is intentionally motivating to get you ready to start your day. And, and that's how I look at, at working out. I'm, trying, I'm always trying to figure out ways to, to do that. So I work out with my family, for one. 
Uh, and I, they don't love that. You know, my, my 12 year old, my 14 year old weren't super excited about spending their summer working out with dad when this first kicked off. There's a lot of sweat and some tears involved in that process, but now they see that they own what their body looks like. They own how they feel and they get to decide. Once again, you don't have to do it. You get to do it. And they see how they have a voice in it and that they're not just beholden to however they look or feel or, you know, the, their strength and their abilities. And so now they actually love it. They, and they, they work out without me telling them uh, all the time. And it'd be fine if they didn't because they, they get to decide whether or not they want to, but they at least have to experience how they have a, have a, are pulling a lever, that they're in control of it. I don't ever want my kids or anybody that I'm associated with to feel like things happen to them. It happened, things happen because of the decisions that we make and, and to include uh, how we react to cancer. In other words, I, I get it. I didn't get to choose cancer, but I did get to choose how I'd respond to it. And that was way more important than whether or not I got cancer. I did not answer your question, though, did I? No, no, no. <laughs> well, but let's go on that because that yeah. makes me think about my daughter who, whenever she's trying to stall at dinner and not eat for her vegetables, she'll go to the middle of the living room and start doing burpees by herself. She's like three and a half years old. She'll do legit ah. burpees. I'm like, okay, number one, good form. Number two, get back and eat your vegetables. <laughs> but, it, but it hit me uh, last week. It hit me that part of that identity is now – my daddy and I and our family, we do exercise. Right. We wake up at 645 and she's the one who wakes me up and she changes from her diapers to her underwear to get changes and she gets in the stroller with our nine month old and then we're on the pier at 715 with a small group of people. And like her identity is now, that's now part of it. And it was just so cool just as a father to see that our family identity now includes fitness. And it's amazing how whether you're leading a team in business, a, a team in the SEALs, or a team in your family, if you create those principles up front and you live those principles, you don't have to be a leader that's hands-on, that's babysitting. Your team, your family will naturally gravitate towards those behaviors that lend themselves that way on the good and bad. If you're the same, if that, in that same breath, if you're constantly going to fast food or you just can't find your way out of Netflix during lockdown, you know, someone made a joke to me today that uh, at the end of lockdown, at the end of coronavirus, we're either going to all be, uh, we're going to emerge from this as a hunk, a drunk, <laughs> a, there's one more I want to forget, or a chunk uh, in the problem. <laughs> a hunk, a drunk, or a chunk. <laughs> right? Or some combination, some combination of, of all those things. And, and I thought that's so true because right now we're really being whittled down to, well, what do you really stand for? How do you, ha how do you handle these types of environments? And are, are you, how are you going to be transformed? Make no mistake, you will be transformed. How is the question? I'd like to get your thoughts on the kind of my exercise and diet routine. Um, so a typical routine will be like Monday and Tuesday, do a 30 minute hit workout with four of the people on the pier um, and feel very comfortable in that. And then at night, I'm usually doing three, five, or eight mile runs, probably three nights a week, four nights a week, because I'm training for um, my own marathon on October 17th. <laughs> this year, I'm doing it. Uh, so last year, uh, last year I ran a marathon with nine days' notice. I was like, I'll just, I'll just do it by myself in Central Park. I'll just run like five laps. It can't be that hard. Um, this year, I'm gonna do it two months. Uh, but, I, but I'm trying to get, you know, up the mileage. Um, and then I don't know when to take rest days, how to take rest. Like, can you walk outside? Can you do stretching? But I haven't noticed that the fat 
is trimming down, even if I do this. And I'm like 16 weeks into working out. So I, I don't know why I'm not able to trim down. So, so I'm gonna give a little bit of bro science here. In other words, I, I do a lot of research in this, but there, there's more qualified people to talk to. Uh, the science behind this kind of stuff <laughs> that I've learned in my sense. So the, and from a hit perspective, extremely valuable. You know, the, the, what we've learned in the last 10 years about these short bursts of anaerobic activity and, and what they do for us, it's, it's really powerful to do it. You can, the, the only caution there is not to overdo it. Uh, that is, you can't do hit five times a week. It really needs to be two, maybe three times a week that you're pushing yourself to a completely breathless situation, your max heart rate. Uh, and, and, and otherwise, you're not going to get much out of it. Because Is that like 160, 165 and above? Yeah, so that, and that's mine too. So I, my peak, the highest I've seen is 174 just in the last six months. And that was really gassed. Um, and, uh, and I only do that a couple of times a week. And I'm typically right around 165. On heart rate and, and for our age you're a little younger than i am but we're close enough to say that for our age uh, that's where we should be on the cardio side what we've learned is that you got to be a little careful how much how fast you're running in other words you don't want to be in zone four in your heart rates on uh, doing cardio for long periods of time because they, they call those trash miles in the uh in the uh the long distance world and the reason they call it that is because it's hard to do and it's hard to recover from so you're actually better served to be in zone three with your heart rate, and which is a little less strenuous. And to it, it, other cultures get this really well, and, and they train just fine with this. To Americans, we're like, oh, forget that. You know, 100%, I'm giving 110%. That's, that's just the way that we're, we're wired. And I'm first or last. Yeah, exactly. Seven-minute abs, six-minute abs. Uh, we're, we are, we're trying to get more out of it when in reality it's counterproductive. So what I would say is measure your heart rate during those long distance runs and challenge yourself to potentially even rein it in a little bit to maintain that heart rate uh, activity. The, the good analogy that's told to me is that it, when you're doing long periods of hard cardio, it's, it's burning calories, but you're also leaving smoke behind. Anytime you burn something, it leaves smoke behind. It leaves a lot of toxins in your body. That doesn't take place during HIT. That's one of the reasons why HIT is valuable, that high, high intensity interval training. Uh, that why cardio is a little less valuable in the zone four, certainly zone five uh, categories. Last thing, when to pick a recovery day. So I wear this little ring. It's called an aura ring. I wear it as my, my wedding ring. And have you heard of this yet? Or you got none? No. So it's, and, and there's tons of technology around this uh, that you don't have to get this particular ring. But the point is that you have something that does biometrics and beyond your Apple watch, because uh, it just doesn't do it well enough yet that supposedly the next one will but you need to have something that's monitoring your sleep and is capturing uh, the different types of sleep that you're getting as well as your resting heart rate. This ring does that really well. And so I woke up this morning and it said, your resting heart rate was 48, which was high for me to be sleeping at that level. And it also showed that I didn't get enough deep sleep or REM sleep. And it even gives you advice. It says you are, uh, you need a day of recovery. You've been uh, working out really hard because it tracks your workouts too. And, uh, and so that helps me to see that even though I could go work out, and, I, and, I, and if I didn't get that message, I would feel like I was being lazy, the Amer lazy American for not working out. But because I'm basing it off of some empirical data, I know that it's a good decision to, uh, to, to rest today. One, I think I just need to turn up, like I'll be doing five days a week of HIT, but I'm leading a group of guys and I'm, um, I'm not going to my full capacity. So maybe yeah. I do need to do that, but like two or three times and then do the distance running maybe the other times. I, so maybe I'm over incorrectly and over training. Um, what about on, on, on diet? 
So for example, for the past four weeks, I think I've had like one beer, one ice cream. Like I'm intentionally doing a three things. I just want to do it for discipline and try to yeah. do that exercise. Uh, but how, how do you think about diet and what are some things that people can really think about? So in terms of how much fat your body carries, it's like 80% diet, 20% working out. And I used to think it was the opposite. So you can't outrun a bad diet? Yeah. It, <laughs> you can't create a six pack in the gym. You can, you can refine the six pack you create in the kitchen, but, uh, but it, you're not going to create one in the gym. And then that's really counterintuitive to what we all are we're taught. I mean, that's counterintuitive to what the exercise uh, equipment will try to sell you on, you know, to get an ab, ab, Abersize, whatever that, that old machine was that we, we rode with it and you got better abs. That's not going to give you a six pack, only the kitchen will. So here's what I've learned. So I did a physique contest a couple of years ago and I had a religiously disciplined diet. About 10 weeks, uh, I ate exactly what they told me, didn't have a drink of alcohol, didn't have a bit of sugar in that time frame. And I, it was hard. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was one of the most valuable things I've ever done to see how the subtle differences in what are called our macros, right? How much carbs we get, how much fats we get, how much protein we get would affect how I felt. It would affect how I looked. It would affect how I performed from an athletic perspective. And we learned to tweak those things for my body and the things that I could eat to, to, to optimize performance. What I learned was that I was eating way more carbs than I really needed. And it was only when I started truly tracking it that I realized this. And I, I would always think, I'm, I've cut out carbs. I, I, I get it. You know, you're supposed to eat less carbs. But as soon as I was literally like weighing food and getting into this, once again, it's that, kind of that checklist mentality where you'd be insulted if somebody told you to do this. But once you start doing it, you realize, wow, I really opened my eyes to what, you know, what I'm taking into my body. Uh, and, and the diet that they had me on didn't leave me hungry by any stretch. Effectively, I was eating more than I wanted to but probably not the things that I was drawn towards in that moment. I had to teach my body that it needed less carbs. I had to, and not, not just pure ketosis, not just pure like Atkins diet. I think that's too much too. It's a, it's a balance for it. And so long story short, once I got those macros under control and, and I've lived that way since then, uh, you know, I have sugar. I have, I've had, I, I also haven't had beer in like eight weeks, but that's, it's because because I got so much else going on right now, starting to fund and shifting the business and stuff. It's it's fun to to have a. I actually that's why I that's why I stopped drinking. Like the kids go down around eight o'clock, and then that's the night shift. Yeah. And guess who's not going to be doing work or productive work at nine o'clock through twelve o'clock? If you have a glass, okay, I'll have two. Oh, you know what? God, that, that ice cream looks pretty good. Exactly. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with that either. In moderation in all things. You don't have to do it. You get to do it. But you also get to work harder and experience this incredibly productive day if you can say no to that one glass of wine. And once you've done it a couple of times, the first few days, a little uncomfortable. But then after that, like anything, your body adapts. You, one of the most important things I've learned, it is just as difficult to break good habits as it is to break bad habits. People don't understand that. They think like, how do you work out every day? How do you work out five days a week? Oh, that sounds miserable. Like, why do you eat like you eat? That sounds, sounds terrible. And I tell them, because literally, I get uncomfortable if I don't do this. If I don't. I will not feel myself. You build these habit patterns in your brain. You are now prepared to do this. And you get satisfaction and enjoyment out of maintaining status quo, maintaining these habits that, that you had to create that were difficult. Five-year anniversary of cancer. Let's do an Ironman. Let's talk about that. Where, where, where was it? Uh, how did you prep for it? And was it difficult? And how did you get through any difficulties? 
Yeah, so I picked that because it was kind of like my put up or shut up moments for survivor's obligation. I effectively said now, because I, I, uh, you know, cancer is probably behind me at this point, and doctors are starting to tell me that I, I could start to plan outside of like six month windows and checkups and stuff like that. And so now I had to decide, well, am I really going to be living to change life? And if I did, what would that look like? And so as I'm approaching the five-year anniversary, I wanted to do something to put the exclamation point on cancer and, and didn't necessarily beat it, but show that it didn't beat me, right? And so, uh, and so I said, what would be extremely hard to do and what am I terrified of? Well, Ironman's the first thing for me personally, because one, I'm a terrible swimmer. Uh, the furthest I had swam before an Ironman, before training for it, was like to get my ski when it fell off in the, in the water, right? And you go water skiing. <laughs> I'm a good runner. So the running part, I could do that. I could do it. You know, I could do a marathon. I, I trained in running. So that, that didn't scare me at all. Uh, the biking though, my last bike said Huffy on it and it was, it probably had pegs in it. And a, a train wheels on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, I had no business, none at all, signing up for an Ironman triathlon in six months was all I gave myself to train. So I signed up for it, paid for it, put my name on the line, told the world I was going to do it only because I knew that by doing that, I'd force myself to get out there and go figure this out. And, and then I learned by doing, I went out and I started training and it was as horrible as you'd imagine at first. I got into an hour of training and thought to myself, I can't finish one hour of, the, of being on the bike, let alone six uh, for this. I, I went out and did 12 miles on a, on a bike in hilly terrain and then thought, how am I going to do 112 miles? How am I going to swim 2.2 miles and do a marathon at the end of this? And every night I'd go to sleep thinking about this and it was something that scared me, but exhilarated me at the same time that once again, those two important components and I saw myself improving. And because it was just scary enough, like I was scared I would potentially even not die on the course, but it, you know, at least in the water, I was a little scared of, of, of <laughs> out of the water uh, as I'm swimming two miles. But I did decide along the way that no matter what happened, I would either finish the race or I would wake up on the side of the course. And that was a really important <laughs> distinction. I, I, I actually completed the Ironman about a month and a half before the start of the race. And it was because it was literally a moment where I had to decide I'm in the middle of my suffering. I'm only, you know, doing a third of what I have to do on the actual Ironman day. What am I committing to here? Is it, is it going to be, I'm going to try this and see what happens. And, and if I can't, you know, I'll, I'll tell everybody that I worked for, tried real hard and it just didn't work out. Or am I going to say I'm leaving everything out there and the only thing I can affect is how hard I try and I'm literally going to do it until I pass out or I finish. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to either pass or I finish. Every night after that, I slept like a baby because that was the decision that allowed me to finish the race. Did you have like a, a mantra or what were you thinking about? The, the first thing was it's, it's, it, I just went over my journey. It was, it was so cathartic as I'm doing this. And I just went through like the, the, the first day I found out I had cancer and what I thought I was leaving behind for my family and how scared I was. And I'd literally, with each stroke in the swim, I would think about those moments. And then when I uh, got on the bike, uh, I, I had a piece of paper that I'd already written on that said, earn it. And it was my message to myself that I, I was getting the second chance that a lot of my friends didn't get. And uh, I had an obligation to earn this second chance. And that was a reminder to me that this was part of it, that, uh, that I'm earning it by doing the things I said I was going to do and getting outside of my comfort zone. And so I thought about that a lot. And then I had a friend who gave me some great advice uh, prior to the race. And, you know, as, as I told the world I was going to race, I got all these messages from people saying, 
oh, you're going to do great. This is, you know, this was built for you and we're so proud of you. And this is going to be so phenomenal. This is great. And then I got this one message from this guy. He's uh, an MMA fighter, a really successful one. I met him in biz business school. This is a great guy. Uh, Iron Ryan Larson, you want to look him up. And, uh, and Ryan writes me and he goes, dude, you're so effing lucky. I hope you suffer. <laughs> I call him up, I'm like, what the hell is that? I hope you suffer. And he goes, yeah, dude, I hope you suffer, man. This is, I'm so jealous of you right now. You, I live for those moments. I train all the time for that moment when I'm in the middle of being choked out. I'm half conscious, half not conscious, and I have to decide whether or not I find the strength to step up to this and, you know, what's inside of me to get through this. He says, and you're going to have that. You're going to have the worst moment. And you're going to suffer, and I hope it's terrible, and you're going to have to decide what you do next. And in the time, I didn't love, love that advice, you know. <laughs> Not like I had an epiphany. I was like, oh, that's glorious. Thank you. Uh, but then I was in the race and I was going up this really steady incline and I'm like 70 miles into the bike and I'd already swam two and a half miles and I'm eight hours into my day and I got to do a marathon after this. And I'm at this point, and by the way, my feet are moving like this, but I'm just, you could walk, easily walk. <laughs> and I was going up this super steep hill and I had this big smile on my face because I'm thinking, all right, a-hole, I'm suffering. You know, this is exactly what. <laughs> and, and, I, and I love that I'm in this moment and I've never felt more alive and I'm choosing to keep pedaling right at this time and I've, I've earned it. I, I witnessed something really interesting when I was doing my extensive nine days of preparation <laughs> for the marathon last year. Um, and I asked the guys, I asked two groups of people. I asked people from the finance crowd who I know had done half marathons or whatever. And I asked people from the uh, veteran community, particularly with the special operations. And I was like, hey, should I do this? Like, how do I do this? It was 100% from the veteran community. Yeah, you can do this. And I was like, okay, how? It said, it's easy. Like, don't quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the finance crowd was so much more, wishy-washy nuance like ah you know what you should you should probably do it in a formal race not your own um yes. you should probably have like you know six months preparation like you know go off and do a half marathon before and do this and it was it was really really interesting because um the mentality was so different from the veteran community and it really was encouraging to 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 get exposed to that and just realize what after going through that and, and completing it, it made me really question what are the different things in our life that we are not doing because we put these, you know, these artificial constraints on our capabilities? Yeah. One thing to, to clarify for the listeners is that in the military and on these elite teams, you are constantly training. So it's not that you're just relying on this innate ability to do it and just don't quit. You, you know, we have the phrase that you don't rise to the level of expectations, you, you fall back to the level of your training. And so it sounds a little bit oppositional, but it's, it's, the, it's not at all. You, you continuously train, but you have this innate belief that you can still do it. And that, that makes all the difference. And it's because you proved it to yourself at an early age, because you did things that you never thought you'd be able to do. Here's the little secret that people outside of that community, I don't think are aware of you're never gonna feel ready. You never will. When I went solo in my airplane for the first time, seven flights into it, I remember turning to my instructor 
as because you, you first do a little bit of a portion together and then he hops out of the plane and you go do it on your own. And I literally looked at him and I said, I don't feel ready. I don't think this is a good idea. I had a primal fear. I thought I was going to die. And he looked at me and said, you don't feel ready, but you are ready. Go fly. And I'll never forget taking off. And I, the, the feeling didn't go away, but I flew the mission and I did it successful and I came back. So that little voice that everybody else in every other community is taught to, oh, you should listen to that one and don't, you know, don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't do more than you can. Train as much as you can to be ready, but realize that that voice doesn't go away no matter what you do. And at some point you need to just leave. So what's the difference between that and the David Goggins type of training and the other things that, like if I said to myself, I'm going to go run an ultra in nine days and I'm going to commit to it, I'm going to die. And what's the difference between that level of stupidity versus the irrationality potentially of running a marathon in nine days? Like what is that difference and when do you know when to pull back or use this thing that, you know, our brain. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it's, I, I think David Goggins is a great example because I am so inspired by him and what he's able to accomplish. And he just shows us that however hard you think you're going, you're probably doing like 40% of what you're capable of doing and, and take off the training wheels and go further. But he's also a good example of where we should think about where to draw the line as well. So in other words, when he did his first ultramarathon, yeah. I'm very familiar with him. He's done amazing things. Uh, you know, he used pee and blood and he yep. had broken his feet. And so you have to say what you're willing to give up in the process uh, to get there. And so for me, if I had gotten to that point, I would say I could go on. I am now electing not to because I, that's not a sacrifice I'm willing to make to show myself that I can do this. Those, those things uh, are, are too far down the road to complete a race for me. Uh, and, and I think it's important to have those. But where, where we all fall short is that we're not saying, I don't want to pee blood or have broken feet. We're saying, I don't really want to hurt that bad. I don't, I don't want to be out of breath for that long. I don't want my muscles to be sore. Well, that's the, the weakness leading your body. Don't listen to that voice. You probably should listen to the voice that says, I don't want to pee blood. So maybe to kind of round this up, when you, when you this week, you had to write your obituary from today until the day that you died. What would you want it to say from today until that moment? Like, how did Joel Neeb live? Yeah, so for my eulogy, what I'd want them to say would be the following. That Joel was always on the lookout for people that would make him better. And he was constantly surrounding himself with people that he perceived as more intelligent, more accomplished, had done things that he wanted to do in life. It was because he knew that he would never rise above the level of his peers. And he was constantly seeking a new group to challenge him, intimidate him a little bit. And that's probably the secret to what he's been able to accomplish in life and then how far he came. But at the same time, he found another group that he didn't advertise as much. And this group was a group of people who wanted to accomplish what he had. And he mentored them and he gave back to them. And he knew the value of having both those groups, that you need to find both the people that are better than you so that you can aspire and you can grow you also need to find those people that you can give to. It's not all about you. It's not all about your own personal journey. It's about taking others and scaling your abilities through a team as you continue to progress through life. And the other thing that you should know about Joel is that he made way more mistakes, failed way more times in his life than he succeeded. But because of cancer, because of the transformative moments in his life, he stopped caring that you even knew about that. And that 
made all the difference. And that's what allowed him to do all the accolades and all the things that people see on the outside, is that for every victory, there were 99 private failures that took place before that could occur, and he just stopped caring that that was, that was happening. He didn't accept those failures. He certainly never made the same mistake twice. He always iterated and learned from it, but he knew that he wasn't defined by that momentary failure. We've covered a ton of ground. I kind of feel like this is like part one of 10. It'll be a series. <laughs> I, I appreciate it so much for doing this, man. Absolutely, Jordan. Always great to connect with you. You know, you're one of the guys that inspires me as well, and I mean this in a heartfelt way. Uh, you're a connector of people. You do a great job of synthesizing what's important to individuals and, and taking a little piece of that, uh, almost like the Tools for Titans book behind you. You're able to take the, the little life hacks and biohacks and, and capture all of them and push them back out to the world in, in a really exciting, generous way. And I love that. Thank you.